And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist with deep jawbreaker eyes. Red rope hair, gumdrop lips, cotton candy thighs. You're my candy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Podcast 55, our June podcast. Along with warm weather, June is filled with many festivals. There's the Spiny Lobster Festival in Japan and the Festival of the Sun in Peru. Then, of course, the Ghost Festival of Thailand, the Bali Arts Festival in, well, Bali, and tons more everywhere. With all these diversions, we can't be blamed for not recording very much. Well, anything, actually. Frank, what do we have instead tonight? Well, we have a semi-old recording of an interview with Jed Roberts, the part owner of a radio station in Roswell, New Mexico, back in 1947, when the world-famous crash happened. We also have a story by Philip K. Dick, an episode of Mindwebs, a Power Records Star Trek audio treat, and some more stuff, of course. So this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Let's get started. Now let's try it up to tempo. Ready? Begin. Right front, two, three, four, right back, two, three, four, right front, two, three, four, right back, two, three, four, turn right, Two, three, touch, turn left. Two, three, touch, right, kick, back, step, right, kick, back, touch, left, kick, back, step, left, kick, back, step, left, front. Two, three, four, left, back. Two, three, four, left, front. Two, three, four, left, back. Two, three, four, turn right. Two, three, touch, turn left. Two, three, step, right, kick, back, step, right, kick, back, touch, left, kick, back, step, left, kick, back, touch, shuffle, right, shuffle, left, shuffle, shuffle, continue. Six, seven, eight, shuffle, ten, eleven, twelve, shuffle, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. Remember now, repeat the dance, putting your right arm, left arm, hips, and backside in and out. Let's skip ahead now to when the singer says, Hey, what you do now, Pokey Pokey Disco. Remember the steps? Ready? Begin. Right back, two, three, touch, left, forward, two, three, touch, back, two, three, touch, forward, two, three, touch, back, two, three, touch, forward, two, three, touch, back, two, three, touch, forward, two, three, touch, and stop. Hokey pokey, hokey pokey disco. Hokey pokey, hokey pokey disco. Hokey pokey, hokey pokey disco. Okay, I'm Judd Roberts in Roswell, and I was the minority stockholder and the manager of a radio station here back in those days. Radio station? KGFL. Okay. And uh, 
we we had we got word of it with the rancher himself. Word of the crash. Uh, oh, I beg your pardon. Of this UFO. Uh huh. Of course, there was a release that came out of Walt Hot's PIO department out of Walker Air Force Base, mm -hmm. and uh, so we followed it up. I did not go out because I I to the crash site. I did not go out to the crash site. Excuse me for being so hesitant about this. <laughs> If I'd look at the camera instead of you, it perhaps would be easier. <laughs> that's why I'm sitting over here so you can talk to me. Okay, so that's it. Uh, be that as it may, uh, we... So you were aware of something going on oh, out oh, there. definitely. Yeah. And, and then... Directly from Walter's press release or other sources? Other sources. As a matter of fact, um, I don't know whether I should say this or not, but it was true. We hid out the rancher for one night. We were aware of that. Yeah. Where? Yes, and we, we did a, we did some transcriptions with him and so mm -hmm. forth. Good old wire recorders, if you will. Where did you hide him out? We had him out at Mr. Whitmore's house here in town. He lived out outside of the city limits on the east side. So you were present at the actual interview? I was not. You were not right? I was trying to run the station at mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. The question that we, that we ran into is the very next morning, some friendly person, probably from Clinton Anderson's office, called us from Washington and said, you are, we, we understand that you have some information and we want to assure you that if you release it on this matter, because it's not supposed to be released, it's very possible that your license could be in jeopardy. And so we suggest that you not do it. And he said, when I mean in jeopardy, like maybe three days. Did Was there any suggestion when you got that phone call? I mean, did Walt Whitmore hesitate about releasing the information? Did he say, well, we're not going to release it, or we might no, release I, I it? I made that decision. So you, you got the call? Yes, I was at the office, you see. C.W. Whitmore, with whom I mm -hmm. worked, uh, had different office hours than you and I. Mm -hmm. And he was a great nighttime worker, and he came in about 6 o'clock at night to talk to me about the radio business, about the time since I'd been there since <laughs> 6 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> So you got the phone call from Washington? Yes, yes. And they, they told you that your license was in jeopardy. Did you... They, they indicated that that would be a, a, a very negative thing. What convinced you that they meant business and you were really talking to somebody important? I don't even remember who it was who identified himself. Was there any... But he convinced but, you. But he convinced me because they'd already made such a stir about, about the releases, you see, to the newspapers and so forth. And so, they, in other words, the clamps went on the story, but this was not unusual for me because I had been down here for a couple of years at that time from mm -hmm. Minneapolis, and with things like air crashes at Walker Air Force Base or the, the problems of that sort, it was not unusual for us to talk to the people and they'd say, okay, we've got a release date on this and not before and not before this time. Of course, we always fought it because they always tried to take care of the afternoon newspaper. Well, that, that was that was where my question was going. When you got the phone call from Washington, was there any thought about going ahead to release the story anyway, or did you just immediately kill it? No, we did not. We didn't think so. We, we didn't know of it. So when you got the phone call, that was it. The story was done. That was as far as I was concerned. Okay. I saw no reason to do it because they'd already had the disclaimers out there, mm -hmm. 10 tons of them talking about <laughs> these weather balloons and so forth. And uh, so that was it. The point is that I was unable, I never did see the material. Mm -hmm. I talked to people just as you have. Mm -hmm. 
Who did you talk to? I, I can't remember. Can't remember at all. Now you say you hit out, or Walt Whitmore hit out Brazel overnight on. Oh yes, but it was W. E. Whitmore. Yes, when senior, senior, senior. Um. So he had the the forty five minute wire recording of Brazel's interview that. I don't know how long it was. In those days, with wire recorders, only these are guys all before your time. And if you recorded 15 minutes, you took it back to the studio, and it took you 15 minutes to rewind them at 3.75 or whatever it was. Do you remember whatever happened to that uh, wire recording? That was, was it erased? No, I haven't. At that particular time, uh, there was there was quite a clamp on on discussion of this, mm -hmm. and because there were people who. Uh, were well thought of people who were pretty well convinced and Marcel was one of them and I knew all of those people out of Walker because we had remotes out there and we did lots of broadcasts out of there. So uh, the, I don't think that the, the I think that we just decided that for Walt Hot's sake and so forth that we would sit tight and accept whatever it was even though in our innermost minds we had real a real question about the validity of it. Mm -hmm. Had they ever treated a, a story like this before? Had they ever created one? Had they ever treated a story in this way? Oh, not in this particular way because this was a highly unique experience. However, as I say, we were used to it because if there were crashes, you didn't say anything about it until the people had been there and all of that sort of thing. Well, yeah, they, they embargoed. Yes, news, precisely. But this was a total clamp down. Well, I would say so. It certainly was as far as we were yeah. concerned. And there, were, there was no time limit on this. They didn't say after such and such date like you can... I can't tell you because, you see, I just got down here in 46 when I came down here from Pillsbury in Minneapolis. And uh, so I hadn't run into that sort of thing. There was lots of it when we were in the missile site business down there and so forth, because if there was a problem, we were advised and we were out there with our blinking lights and all that sort of stuff, but we we held, we sat on those things until there were decent releases on that. People have asked me because there's been a discussion, particularly after after your broadcast, mm -hmm. and that, that revitalized. In fact, I was up in Craig, Colorado last week, and a guy who hasn't been interested at all all of a sudden he's a fan and I sent him the book from Moore mm -hmm. and so forth uh, when I got home here on the weekend. But but the point is that insofar as I was concerned, people say, do you think it was true? And I said, I don't, I don't know. But I'll tell you this, I, I it's hard for me to believe that in this infinitesimally small area of the universe that we're, we're the only people with any intelligence. So if there are, and another thing that, that interested me is because I had a friend who had a lot of hours, with, I think it was with Northwest at that time, and he had, I don't know how many hours of, in, as captain, and when he said he saw something off the left wing, here's a guy who, when he makes a statement, if you're a disbeliever or an unbeliever, you say, boy, I don't want to fly with him because I think he's a nut. So he puts his own business in jeopardy, as it were. So W. Whitmore had Brazel over 
night. Yeah. Did you did actually see Brazel himself? Did you ever see Only when they first came in, yeah. How did he come across to you? I didn't talk to him very much. Mm -hmm. We were, frankly, we were hiding the things for Halloween and we didn't want to make much of a stir on it. And Whitmore's lived way out on East Second. So that's that's about it. Did um, uh, so Brazel is with Walt Whitmore overnight. Yeah. Did the military come and pick him up or did Whitmore take him to I think he turned him over. Would it be fair to say that Whitmore surrendered him to the military or is oh, I got too think strong so because I, he was just a guest overnight. Okay. So so you don't surrender a guest unless your name is this guy over in Iraq. But was the military, <laughs> but the military was looking for him though. I think so. Yeah. Was was W. Whitmore hiding Brazel from the military or from your rivals? He was he we just had a good story. So Whitmore was more worried about protecting his story than the military finding where Brazel sure, was. Sure. We had no reason to hide him out, particularly, except we wanted to do some talking to him first. It so happened that it was all for nothing because we didn't use it. Did okay. So uh, that that next morning, Whitmore decided he wanted to go out to the crash site. No, I decided that you decided. I wanted to go out because because, because they Whitmore had been out there. They been out to the crash site or? Yeah, I think, but I don't know. He couldn't get any closer than I did. I thought we could do it with a back road or something. So you followed the back roads out toward sure. Corona. Sure. What happened when you got out toward the well, crest? Well, they just had some roadblocks, that was all. And what was on one of the back roads? Well, it, they had the whole thing. You used the word cordon a minute ago. I presume that might be a pretty well. I didn't pay that much attention to I wasn't driving. We had another guy. And, and I was more interested in just getting out there and disappointed because, believe me, we didn't get close. You say another guy, do you have to remember who that was? I have the slightest idea. We had about six people working for the station. So you went out to the, to the area, you were stopped by the... Sure. What did, how, did, sure. how did they do that? They just say, sorry, the road's closed, this is a restricted area. Military men? Yeah, we were used to that. Um, how, what, were, they, were they in a Jeep, were they in a car? I can't imagine. I imagine they were just one of their blue sedans that they had. And uh, as you approached, the fellow came out on the road and waved you down? Sure. But, but as a matter of fact, the reason I'm so vague, I don't mean to be intentionally, is because of that thing, it wasn't really a big deal. Because we'd had these experiences before where some accident had happened and where they, they just kind of blocked off the whole area. So it, it was perfectly reasonable as far as I was concerned. So you didn't get out to the site, you were t turned no, around at that point no. and came back to Roswell. How, how close did you get, roughly? I'd, I'll bet I wasn't within 15 miles. I don't know. I haven't any idea because at that time, as I say, it wasn't important. We wanted we wanted to see the stuff we heard about. And of course, by that time, it was all picked up, certainly that day. That's about the story. You say the stuff you heard about. What did you hear? What do you recall? Well, one of the things that I still remember specifically is that the material, they said, was as thin as a wrapper on a Lucky Strike package, but you couldn't break it, and if you twisted it and scrunched it up together, it would, it would come back to its own deal. They tried to burn it, and so forth, and uh, it, was a, it, was a, it, was, it was a good mystery for a small town. 
But of course, we had a large, at that particular time, we had a lot of military people here, as you know. Do you notice any extraordinary military activity in town at that time? Of course, everybody started watching this guy. So there was an attitude within the town itself. Oh, very aware. And my, my thought was, looking back to the old days of the invasion, if you remember. War of the Worlds. Yeah. And, and the effect it had on people on the East Coast particularly. And I thought that perhaps maybe this was a good reason. I have reason now to believe that it was more than just protecting the public from uh, getting upset over something. Because after that, you know, we got into little Lubbock lights and all of these sort of things. And, and people that I knew who were highly respectable, people, long-time guys, ranchers, and people like that, who saw some of these things, and they had no reason to, they had no reason to, to kid anybody about standing on the side of their pickup and watching these lights go back and forth up in the mountains. They're not the, they're, they're not the sort of people who, who needed to do that or was it their nature to be that sort of person? Around the station, what was the general reaction to the weather balloon story? <laughs> well, the weather balloons were being launched about a block from us every night. And from the because they did that with the uh, they did that with the uh, the uh, weather bureau at that time. That's how they got their readings. So weather balloons per se were not that were not that interesting. So you didn't buy that explanation? We really didn't, but we didn't have any good reason because that, that material was scattered up there, as you well know, and uh, it wasn't like being able to see a, where something goes down and there's a hell of an explosion and there's a big dark, dark place. Did you ever have occasion to talk to, say, Colonel Blanchard or any of the people out at the base after this event and subsequent years and learn anything from them? Maybe they said something to you? I don't think so. Bill Blanchard was, was was one of the first guys I knew out there because he had served on, under my uncle, who was a general in the Air Force. In fact, we, we had four guys out there who were commanders who had all been students under him down at what used to be Kelly, down in San Antonio. So I always made it a point to, to meet those people because they're nice people. And we entertained them a few times, and they we go in there for a drink or something on occasion. But no, no, we didn't discuss it, and I don't know why we didn't because it, that would have been the time to to try to find out something, as it were. Mm -hmm. but, uh, After Whitmore turned Razzle over to yeah. the military, yeah. you saw him at the. Did, Did I see Rod? You saw Whitmore, certainly. Oh, sure. The first chance you had to ask him about wire recording. I do not know, in retrospect, why I didn't. I just figured it was a dead story. And what you're saying is that Whitmore never told you what the rancher said? Oh, in just, just plain discussion, but, but mm -hmm. the rancher didn't say much. The rancher really said, hey, I was out and I was riding and I saw this and this is what it looked like and I couldn't figure out what it was. And so I came to town to tell some people and mentioned it to some people and pretty soon there was great interest. And so I don't think that, that he himself went in there and did a lot of pseudo 
scientific experiments with this material. There were all sorts of stories about bodies being loaded into planes and all that sort of stuff. And part of the first, that first bunch went right down to uh, Fort Worth to Carswell. And the rest of them, I understood, went back to, uh, oh hell, who's at Akron? You mean Dayton? Dayton. Right field? Yeah, Dayton. Yeah. You say others, you mean other aircraft? or? Yeah, the presumption was. Do you hear any bizarre stories of aliens running loose in Roswell at the time or no. anything like that? No, we did not. We probably would. We've probably been too scared to notice it. <laughs> After all, that was all pre-ET, and we didn't know how friendly these folk are. <laughs> So basically, all you really know is a little bit of what Whitmore told you sure. about the rancher finding the debris sure. coming into town sure. and then attempting yourself to go out to the site and being turned back yeah. and receiving the phone call. Now, are you sure it was Clinton Anderson's office? And not no, no, but I would assume so. He's our senator. Uh, could it have been Dennis Chavez? Oh, well, it could have been Dennis Chavez, I presume. So from that, from that was good enough for us because... At that particular time, you didn't go around wrestling with the FCC if you could help it. They gave you enough trouble on, on other things, sitting out on a hill and monitoring you with a lousy 250 watts at that time. <laughs> to make sure you weren't putting out bad information. Oh, bad information, and or, or ASCAP was out there trying to find if we were playing some of their stuff and not reporting it. So we had all of the government that we needed. <laughs> Any information about the rancher in the next couple of days. No. No, I don't. The, uh, did you have the impression where he was? If I do not recall. It, it's very possible. And, and, and all I know, he didn't come back into the station or anything like that. Did you ever see Brazil after that? I never did. But that's not unusual. These guys all live hell and gone away, as you know. And, uh, and uh, we were busy at that time. I had a small, small staff, and three or four guys working from the base who were working part time and so forth. And it was, it, uh, as I say, in retrospect, if we'd, if we'd had any idea of what we had and what general interest there would be, <laughs> boy, that, then it would have been easy, and, and we would have, obviously, we would have sat down and said, let's see if we can find out this and that, and put two and two together and get something. Did the military ever come by the station to pick up press releases or no. anything like that? No. No indication that the military came back to um, make sure there was nothing left behind that might? No, no, I don't think so. Because we were very, we were very close to the PIO department. Mm -hmm. And because uh, they were a source of news. And uh, even if they had one, I don't think it would have been a, a great mental note after all of these years because it was it was not that uncommon a situation, like you said. Mm -hmm. Through the years, and certainly since the resurrection of all the story and stories involved, any people that you've talked to, any former colleagues or anyone else that ever voiced an opinion or Related any little tidbits of information to you? Oh, that I didn't have? Mm -hmm. No, because it was usually, do you believe this stuff? And it so happened that, 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 that I believed it to some extent at that time, and then 
ultimately, I just felt more and more that, that this was a possibility. Uh, it, 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 was, it was nicely hushed up, let me put it that way. That's a general way of putting it. So you, you weren't that concerned that the military came in and suggested that uh, you not release the story. That oh. sort of thing happened on a regular basis. Oh, yes. Oh, sure. Whether it was an aircraft accident or maybe something that... Well, see, we were trying to cover all of that stuff at the local level because that's what we had. That's all we had. And uh, so, uh, and uh, the two stations with which I was associated over a period of time, we always had mobile units and we always had we could broadcast and so forth. And even in those days, uh, if there was a story why we chased it pretty hard. But for, for this one, you didn't really think there was a story? Because I they, didn't think it was, we were going to be able to do anything with it. I thought that, that whatever, they were going to, whatever they were going to report, because there were, the question was in many minds here, that whatever they were going to report, that's what, that's what we would tell them, so the people would know. So there was no place for you to go with the story? No. No, because we really didn't have the story. We had, we had a discussion with a guy who had found some stuff, but they, they, they did a good job of, of, of closing that thing up. Hell, Marcel was out of here in, I don't know, four or five days, I imagine. There, was, there, were, there were some people that were shipped out. Maybe, they were, maybe that had been planned for 90 days, but the coincidence of it made people say, boy, get him out of here. Was there much talk among the, the townspeople? <laughs> oh, well, oh my, yes. Sure. It's the most exciting thing that happened since they sold the prize bull at the 4-H sale. <laughs> 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 Covering all the big news. <laughs> yes, I mean, secondary secondary story, but next to the bull. Mm -hmm. Was there any general tone to the public reaction? That they believed it, they didn't believe it, whatever. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have any idea because we never did run a poll or anything like that. I would suggest that that there were some people who said, Boy, this must be a big story or they wouldn't have made such an effort. And others who said, Some nut. And so it was a weather balloon and that's good enough for me if they told me it was a weather balloon by George. Which side were you on? I was in the middle between at that time. I have, I'm obviously have gone to the pro. There was such a thing now, but only on the basis of of, of small small bore logic. That, as to repeat myself, if 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 we think with this little dot, and it's it's getting smaller and smaller all the time, even though this thing isn't working too well up there now. But the the fact is that. That for us to consider the fact that we are the only people with the intelligence to do that, and there's been so much stuff to the contrary since those days, that uh, I, I don't know.
or confused, get information or a pamphlet at most pharmacies or a health clinic. If you need help, see a doctor. The story this time is called Rollerball Murder by William Harrison. It first appeared in Esquire magazine in 1973. It was reprinted in the book The Seventh Annual Best Science Fiction, 73, edited by Harry Harrison and Brian Aldiss. Rollerball Murder by William Harrison. The game. The game. Here we go again. All glory to it. All things I am and own are because of roller ball murder. Our team stands in a row, 20 of us in salute as the corporation hymn is played by the band. We view the hardwood oval track that offers us the rewards of mayhem. 50 yards long, 30 yards across the ends, high banked, and at the top of the walls, the cannons which fire those frenzied 20-pound balls, similar to bowling balls made of ebonite, at velocities over 300 miles an hour. Those balls careen around the track, eventually slowing and falling with diminishing centrifugal force, and as they go to ground or strike a player, another volley fires. Here we are, our team. Ten roller skaters, five motorbike riders, five runners or clubbers. As the hymn plays, we stand erect and tough. Eighty thousand sit watching in the stands. And another two billion viewers around the world inspect the set of our jaws on multivision. The runners, those bastards, slip into their heavy leather gloves and shoulder their lacrosse-like paddles, which are too hot to handle. And they try to keep the runners from passing us and scoring points and become the fodder in the brawl. So two teams of us, 40 in all, go skating and running and biking around the track while the big balls are fired in the same direction as we move, always coming in from behind to scatter and maim us. And the object of the game, as if you didn't know, is for the runners to pass all the skaters on the opposing team, field a ball, and pass it to a biker for one point. And bikers, by the way, may give the runners a lift, in which case those of us on skates have our hands full overturning 175cc motorbikes. 
There are no rest periods, no substitute players, and if you lose a man, your team plays short. Today, I turn my best side to the cameras. I am Jonathan E., none other, and nobody passes me on the track. I'm the core of the Houston team, and for the two hours of play, no rules, no penalties once that first cannon fires, I'll level any bastard runner who raises a paddle at me. We move. Immediately, there are pileups, bikes, skaters, referees, runners, all tangled and punching and scrambling, when one of the balls zooms around the corner and belts us. I pick up momentum and heave an opposing skater into the infield at center ring. Today, I'm brute speed, driving, pushing up the track, dodging the ball, hurtling downward beyond those runners. Two runners do hand-to-hand combat, and one gets his helmet knocked off in a blow that tears away half his face. The victor stands there too long, admiring his work, and gets wiped out by a biker who swoops down and flattens him. The crowd screams, and I know the cameramen have it on isolated shots, and the viewers in Melbourne, Berlin, Rio, and L.A. are all heaving with excitement in their easy chairs. When an hour's gone, I'm still wheeling along, although we have four team members out with broken parts, one rookie may be dead, two bikes demolished. But the other team, good old London, is worse off. One of their motorbikes roars out of control, takes a hit from one of the balls, and bursts into flames. Wild cheering. And cruising up next to their famous Jackie McGee, I time my punch just right. He turns in my direction, exposes the ugly snarl inside his helmet, and I take him out of action. In that tiniest instant, I feel his teeth and bone give way, and the crowd screams approval. We have him now, we really do. And the score ends 7-2. to two. Years pass, rules alter, and I hear of games in Manila now or in Barcelona with no time limits. Men bashing each other until there are no runners left, no way of scoring points. Uh, That's the coming thing. I hear of rollerball murder played with mixed teams, men and women wearing tearaway jerseys. Everything will happen. They'll change the rules till we skate on a slick of blood. We all know that. You see, before this century began, before the Great Asian War of the 1990s, before the corporations replaced nationalism and the corporate police forces supplanted the world's armies, in the last days of American football and the World Cup in Europe, I was a tough young rookie who knew all the rewards of this game. Women. I had them all, even pity a good marriage once. I had so much money after my first trophies that I could buy houses and land and lakes beyond the huge cities where only the executive class was allowed. My photo, then as now, was on the covers of magazines so that my name and the name of the sport were one. And I was Jonathan E., no other, a survivor, and much more in the bloodiest sport. At the beginning, I played for oil conglomerates, and then those corporations became known as energy. I've always played for the team here in Houston. They've given me everything. How are you feeling? Mr. Bartholomew asks me. He's the head of energy, one of the most powerful men in the world. And he talks to me like I'm his son. I answer, feeling mean. He tells me they want to do a special on Multivision about my career. Lots of shots on the side screen showing my greatest plays and the story of my life. How energy takes in orphans, gives them work and protection, makes careers possible and all that. Really feel mean, huh? Mr. Bartholomew asks again. and I answer the same, not telling him all that's inside me because, well, he'd probably misunderstand not telling him that I'm tired of the long season, that I'm lonely and miss my wife, that I yearn for high, lost, important thoughts, and that maybe 
just maybe I've got a deep rupture in the soul. An old buddy, Jim Cletus, comes by the ranch for the weekend. Mackie, my present girl, takes our dinners out of the freezer and turns the rays on them. Cletus works as a judge now, and every game there are two referees, clowns whose job it is to see nothing's amiss, and the judge who records the points scored. Cletus is also on the International Rules Committee, and he tells me they're considering some changes. A uh, penalty for being lapped by your own team, for one thing. It's a damn simple penalty, too, John. They'll take off your helmet. Cletus wants a runner for Toronto, fills up my oversized furniture, and rests his hands on his bad knees. And I ask him, uh, what else? Can, can you tell me, Cleet? Oh, just financial things. More bonuses for superior attacks, you know, bigger bonuses for being named World All-Star. And that'll be good news for you again. And there's some talk of reducing the two-month off-season. The viewers want more. After dinner, Cletus walks around the ranch with me, and he asks if there's anything I want. Yeah, something, but I don't know what. Yeah, something's on your mind, John. We trudge up the path of a hillside. The Texas countryside stretches before us, pavilions of clouds. Did you ever think about death in your playing days? Well, never in the game itself. Off the track, I never thought about anything else. And we pause and take a good long look at the horizon. Uh, Jonathan, there's another thing in the rules committee. Uh, they're considering dropping the time limit. At least, God help us, John, the suggestions come up officially. Uh, naturally, I'm holding out for the time limit. Uh, I've played, you know, I know a man's limits. Sometimes in that committee, Johnny, I feel pretty clumsy sitting there and insisting there should still be a few rules. The statistical nuances of rollerball murder entertain the multitudes as much as any other aspect of the game. The highest number of points scored in a single contest, 81. The highest velocity of a ball when actually caught by a runner, 176 miles per hour. Highest number of players put out of action in a single game by a single skater, 13, world's record by yours truly. Most deaths in a single contest, 9, Rome against Chicago, December 4th of 2012. The giant lighted boards that circle above the track monitor our pace, record each fact of the slaughter, and we have millions of fans. It's always seemed strange to me who never look directly at the action, but just study those statistics. A multivision survey established this. The most powerful men in the world are the executives. They run the major corporations that fix prices, wages, and the general economy. We all know they're crooked, but they have almost unlimited power and money. But I have considerable power and money myself, and I'm still anxious. What can I possibly want, I ask myself, except possibly more knowledge? I consider recent history, which is virtually all anyone remembers, and how the corporate wars ended so that we settled into the six majors, energy, transport, food, housing, services, and luxury. Sometimes I forget who runs what. For example, now that the universities are operated by the majors and provide the farm system for rollerball murder, which major runs the universities, services, or luxury? And music is one of our biggest industries, but I can't remember who administers it. Narcotic research is now under food, and I remember it used to be under luxury. Anyway... I think I'll ask Mr. Bartholomew about knowledge. See, he's a man with a big view of the world, with values, with memory. My team flings itself into the void while his team harnesses the sun, taps the sea, finds new alloys, and is clearly just a hell of a lot more serious. The Mexico City game has a new wrinkle. They've changed 
the shape of the ball on us. Now, Cletus didn't even warn me. Maybe he couldn't. But here we are, playing with a ball not quite round. Its center of gravity is altered, so it rumbles around the track in irregular patterns. This particular game's bad enough because the bikers down here are, well, they're getting wise to me. For years, since my reputation was established, bikers have always tried to get me out of a game early. But early in the game, I'm wary and strong, and I'll always gladly take on a biker, even since they put shields on the bike so we can't grab the handlebars. Now, though, those guys know I'm getting older. Still mean, but slowing down, as the sports pages put it. So they let me bash it out with the skaters and runners for as long as possible before sending the bikers after me. Knock out Jonathan E., they say, and you've beaten Houston. And that's right enough, but they haven't done it yet. Mackie is gone, and in her place now is the new one, Daphne. My Daphne's tall and English and likes photos. Always wants to pose for me. And sometimes we get out our boxes of old pictures. Mine is a player mostly, and hers is a model, and we look at ourselves. And of her long, soft hair. Season, when I see Mr. Bartholomew again, he has been disposed as the chief executive at Energy. He's still very important, but lacks some of the old certainty. His mood is sort of reflective, and I decide to take this opportunity to talk about what's bothering me. We lunch in Houston Tower. There's a nice beef wellington, a good burgundy, and Daphne sits there like a stone, probably imagining she's in a movie. Well, knowledge, I see, says Mr. Bartholomew in reply to my topic that I brought up. What are you interested in, Johnny? The history, uh, the arts? Uh, can I be personal with you? Well, sure, naturally. He's a little uneasy, and although Mr. Bartholomew isn't especially one to inspire confession, I decide to blunder along. I began in the university. You know, that was, well, about 17 years ago. In those days, we still had books, and I read some, quite a few, because I thought I might make an executive. Jonathan, believe me, I, I can guess what you're going to say. <laughs> Mr. Bartholomew sighed and sipped some burgundy and glanced at Daphne. I'm, uh, I'm one of the few with some real regrets about what happened to the books. Everything's still on tape, but it just isn't the same, is it? Nowadays, only the computer specialists read the tapes, and we're right back in the Middle Ages when only the monks could read the, the Latin script. Would you like me to assign you a specialist, Johnny? No, that's, that's not exactly it. Well, we have some great film libraries. You could get a permit to see anything you want. The Renaissance, Greek philosophers. You know, I saw a nice summary film on the life and thought of Plato once. All I know is rollerball murder. You you don't want out of the game, John. No, no, not at all. It's just that well, I want... God, Mr. Bartholomew, I don't know how to say it. I, I want more. He offered a blank look. But not things in the world. More for me, Mr. Bartholomew. He heaved a great sigh, leaned back, allowed the steward to refill his glass. I know that he understands. He's a man of about 60, enormously wealthy, powerful in our most powerful executive class. And behind his eyes is the deep, weary, undeniable comprehension of the life that he's lived. The knowledge, John, either converts to power or it converts to melancholy. Uh, which could you possibly want, Jonathan? You have power, you have status and skill. You have the whole masculine dream that many of us would like to have. And in rollerball murder, there's no room for melancholy, is there? In the game, the mind exists for the body to make a harmony of havoc, right? 
Do you want to change that? Do you want the, the mind to exist for itself alone? I don't think you actually want that, do you, John? I don't really know. Well, I'll, I'll get you some permits, Jonathan. You can see video films, learn something about reading tapes if you want. I don't think I really have any power. Oh, come on, John. Somehow the conversation drifts away from me. Daphne on cue, like the good spy for the corporation, she probably is, starts feeding Mr. Bartholomew lines, and soon, oddly enough, we're discussing the upcoming game with Stockholm. A hollow space begins to grow inside me as though fire is eating out a hole. The conversation concerns the end of the season, the all-star game, records being set this year, but my disappointment in what exactly I don't even know begins to sicken me. Late season in the locker room, a pall takes us. We hardly speak among ourselves now, and like soldiers or gladiators sensing what lies ahead, we move around in the surgical orders, assuring ourselves we'll survive. Our last training and instruction this year concerns the delivery of death blows to opposing players. There's no time now for the tolerant shoving and bumping of yesteryear. I consider that I possess two good weapons. Because of my unusually good balance on skates, I can often shatter my opponent's knee with a kick. And also I have a fine backhand blow to the ribs and heart. So when I'm wheeling side by side with some opponent who raises an arm against me, that's it. If the new rules change, removes a player's helmet, of course, that's death. As it is right now, and there are rumors, rumors every day about what new version will have next of rollerball murder. But right now, you go for the windpipe, the ribs, or the heart, the diaphragm, any place you don't break your hand. Now, Daphne is gone, too. And in this interim, before another companion arrives, courtesy of all my friends and employers at Energy, Ella looks back into my dreams and daylight fantasies. I was a corporation child, some executive son I always preferred to think, brought up in the Galveston section of the city. As a big kid, naturally athletic and strong. And this, according to my theory, gave me healthy mental genes, too, because, well, I figure that strong in body is strong in mind. A man with brute speed surely also has the capacity to mull over his life. Anyway, I married at the age of 15 while I worked on the docks for oil conglomerates. Ella was a secretary, slim, with long brown hair, and we managed to get permits both to marry and enter the university together. She was in general electronics, and I was in some pre-executive courses and rollerball murder. She fed me well that first year. I put on 30 hard pounds, and at night she soothed my bruises. Was she a spy, too? I sometimes wondered whose job it was to groom the killer. And perhaps it was because she was my first woman ever. Eighteen years old, lovely, that I've never properly forgotten. She left me for an executive, just packed up and went to Europe with him. Ella, love, one does consider, did you beef me up and break my heart in some great design of corporate society? Well, there I was, whatever, angry, hurt, beyond repair, I thought at the time. But the hand that stroked Ella soon dropped all the foes of Houston. I take sad stock of myself in this quiet period before another woman arrives. I'm smart enough, I know that. I had to be to survive, yet I, I seem to know nothing and can feel the hollow spaces in my own heart. Like one of those computer specialists, I have my know-how, I know what today means, what tomorrow likely holds, and maybe it's because the books are gone. Mr. Bartholomew is right, it's a shame they're transformed. 
Maybe it's because the books are gone that I, I feel so vacant. If I didn't remember my Ella, this I realize, I wouldn't even want to remember because it's love I'm recollecting. Recollect, sure. I read quite a few books that year with Ella, and afterward, too, before turning professional in the game. Apart from all the volumes about how to get along in business, I read the history of the Tokyo game. We discover there will be three oblong balls in play at all times. Some of our most experienced players are afraid to go out on the track now. And then after they're coaxed and threatened and finally consent to join the fake injury whenever they can and sprawl in the infield. As for me, I play with greater abandon than ever and give the crowd its money's worth. The Tokyo skaters are either peering over their shoulders looking for approaching balls when I smash them or the poor devils are looking for me when a ball takes them out of action. One fellow with a broken back flaps around for a moment like a fish and then shudders and dies. The balls jump at us as though they have brains, but fate carries me as I know somehow it will. I'm a force field, a destroyer, and I kick a biker into the path of a ball going at least 200 miles an hour. I swerve around a pileup of bikes and skaters, ride high on the track, zoom down, find a runner clubber who panics and misses with a roundhouse swing of his paddle. Without much ado, I belt him out of play with a certain knowledge. I felt it before that he's dead before he hits the infield. A ball flips out of place, and after being fired from the cannon, it jumps the railing, sails high, and plows into the spectators. I take a hit from a ball. It's one of the three or four times I've ever been belted. The ball is riding low on the track when it catches me and strikes my calf and skate boots, so it's not too tough, although I tumble like a baby. While I'm down and hurting, I see one of our skaters, Moon Pie, killed. They take off his helmet, working slowly. It's like slow motion, and I'm writhing and cursing and unable to help. They open his mouth on the toe of a bastard's boot, and then they kick the back of his head and knock out his teeth and rattle downhill on the track. They kick again and stomp his brains this time. He draws a last groaning goodbye while the cameras record it all. Later, I'm up pushing along once again, feeling bad, but knowing everyone else feels the same. I have that last surge of energy, the one I always get when I'm going good, and near the closing gun, I manage a nice move. Grabbing one of their runners with a headlock, I skate him off to limbo, bashing his face with my free fist, picking up speed until he drags behind like a dropped flag, and disposing of him in front of a ball which carries him off in a comic flop. Oh, God. Before the All-Star game, Cletus comes to me with the news I expect. This one will be a no-time-limit extravaganza in New York. Every multivision set in the world tuned in. The bikes will be more high-powered. Four oblong balls will be in play simultaneously. And the referees will blow the whistle on any sluggish player and remove his helmet as a penalty. Hmm, those rules, no worry, I tell him. It'll go no more than in one hour and we'll all be dead. We're at the Houston Ranch on a Saturday afternoon, riding around in my electro cart, viewing my stock. Now, this is probably the ultimate spectacle of my wealth. My own beef cattle, in a day when only a few special members of the executive class have any meat at all to eat, with the exception of mass-produced fish. I tell Cleet that he owes me a favor. Anything, he answers, not looking me in the eyes. I turn the cart up a lane behind the rustic fence, an archway of oak trees overhead. I tell him, I want you to bring Ella to me. After all these years, yeah, that's what I want. Please. You arrange it and don't give me any excuses, okay? We meet at the villa near Lyon in early June, only a week before the New York All-Star game, and I think she immediately reads something in my eyes which helps her to love me again. Of course, I love her. 
I realize seeing her that I have only a vague recollection of being alive at all. And that was a long time ago in another century of the heart. When I had no identity except my name. When I was a simple dock worker before I ever saw all the world's places or moved in the rumbling nightmares of rollerball murder. She kisses my fingers. Oh, she says softly, and her face is filled with true wonder. What's happened to you, Johnny? A few soft days. When our bodies aren't entwined, we try to remember and tell each other everything. The, the way we used to hold hands, how we fretted about receiving the marriage permit. How the books looked on our shelves in the old apartment in River Oaks. We strain at times, trying to recall the impossible. It's true that history is really gone, that we have no families or touchstones, that our short personal lives alone judge us. And I want to hear about her husband, the places they've lived, the furniture in her house, anything. I tell her in turn about all the women, about Mr. Bartholomew, about Jim Cletus, about the ranch and the hills outside Houston. It would be nice, I think, once to imagine that she was taken away from me by some malevolent force in this awful age, but I know the truth of that. She went away simply because I wasn't enough back then, because those were the days before I yearned for anything. When I was beginning to live to play the game. But no matter. For a few days... She sits on my bed, and I touch her skin like a blind man. Our last morning together, she comes out in her traveling suit with her hair pulled up underneath a fur cap. The softness has left her voice, and she smiles with efficiency. She plays like a biker, I decide. She rides up there high above the turmoil, decides when to swoop down, and makes a clean kill. Goodbye, Elda, I say, and she turns her head slightly away from my kiss so that I touch her fur cap with my lips. I'm glad I came, she says politely. Good luck, Johnny. New York is frenzied with what is about to happen. The crowds throng into energy plazas, warm the ticket offices at the stadium. And wherever I go, people are reaching for my hands, pushing my bodyguards away, trying to touch my sleeve as though I'm some ancient religious figure, a seer or prophet. Before the game begins, I stand with my team as the corporation hymns are played. I'm brute speed today, I tell myself, trying to rev myself up. Yet, a dream in my thoughts, I'm a bit unconvinced. A chorus of voices joins the band now as the music swells. The game. The game. All glory to it. The music rings, and I can feel my lips move with the words singing. Artu, where are you? Artu? Artu? Artu, you're on fire! Artu, Gitu, you found a cigarette. Well, I don't think smoking is grown up at all. Because it's very dangerous. Smoking does dreadful things to your lungs. And is very bad for your heart. I know I don't have one, but humans do. And I think we should set a good example. Well done, Artu. Oh, hello. You know smoking is bad for your health, and it isn't grown up at all. So please, don't smoke. Artu, do you really think I 
don't have a heart. Where are you going, Bubber? Ernie Mills shouted from across the street, fixing papers for his route. No place, Bubber Searle said. You going to see your lady friend? What do you go visit that old lady for? Bubber went on. He turned the corner and went down Elm Street. Already he could see the house at the end of the street. The front of the house was overgrown with weeds. Old dry weeds that rustled and chattered in the wind. The house itself was a little gray box. The porch steps sagging. There was an old weather-beaten rocking chair on the porch, with a torn piece of cloth hanging over it. Bubber went up the walk. He could smell it. Bubber turned the handle of the bell. Mrs. Drew opened the door. A little dried-up old lady. Like the weeds that grew along the front of the house. Come on inside, Bernard. They're just now ready. Bubber went to the kitchen door and looked in. He could see them, resting on a big blue plate on top of the stove, a plate of warm, fresh cookies right out of the oven. How do they look? Mrs. Drew said. She rustled past him into the kitchen. And maybe some cold milk too. She poured a glass of milk for him, and set some of the cookies on a small plate. Let's go into the living room. Bubber nodded. Mrs. Drew carried the milk and the cookies in, and set them on the arm of the couch. Then she sat down in her own chair, watching Bubber. Bubber ate greedily as usual, intent on the cookies. Mrs. Drew waited patiently until the boy had finished, and his already ample sides bulged that much more. When Bubber was done with the plate, he glanced toward the kitchen again. Wouldn't you like to wait until later for the rest? All right. She leaned back in her chair. Well, what did you do in school today? How did it go? All right. The little old lady watched the boy look restlessly around the room. Bernard, won't you stay and talk to me for a while? He had some books on his lap, some school books. Why don't you read to me from your books? Can I have the rest of the cookies after? Of course. Bubber moved over towards her to the end of the couch. He opened his books. Which do you want? The geography. Bubber opened the big blue book at random. Peru. The little old lady watched him, his fat cheeks wobbling as he read, holding his finger next to the line. He was very close to her, only a little way off. There was only the table and lamp between them. He had been coming for over a month now, ever since the day she had been sitting on her porch and seen him go by, and thought to call to him, pointing to the cookies by her rocker. Why had she done it? She did not know. 
The boy's voice droned on, and as she sat, dozing and listening, something began to happen. Her grey wrinkles and lines dimming away. As she sat in the chair, she was growing younger, the thin, fragile body filling out with youth again. It had happened before. Almost every time the boy came and sat by her, a breath of warmth inside her cold body for the first time in years. In her chair, the little old lady had become a dark-haired matron of perhaps thirty, a woman with full cheeks and plump arms and legs. Bopper put down his book and stood up. I have to go. Can I take the rest of the cookies with me? She blinked, rousing herself. The boy was in the kitchen, filling his pockets with cookies. He went across the living room to the door. Mrs. Drew stood up. All at once, the warmth left her. She felt tired, tired, and very dry. Oh, it was gone, gone again as soon as he moved away. She tottered to the mirror above the mantel and looked at herself. Old faded eyes stared back. I'll see you later. Please, please come back again. Sure. Bubber pushed the door open. Goodbye. He went down the steps. He was gone. Bubber, you come in here. May Searle stood on the porch. All right. Bubber came slowly up onto the porch, pushing inside the house. What's the matter with you? She caught his arm. I'm tired. His father came through the living room with the newspapers in his undershirt. What's the matter? Look at him. He's been visiting that old lady. Ralph Searle said, "Can't you tell? What do you go there for, Bub? She gives him cookies. He'd do anything for a plate of cookies." Bub, listen to me. I don't want you hanging around that crazy old lady any more. I don't care how many cookies she gives you. You hear me? Bubber looked down at the floor, leaning against the door. His heart beat heavily. I told her I'd come back. You can go once more. Tell her you won't be able to come back again, though. You make sure you tell her nice. Now go upstairs and get washed up. After dinner, better have him lie down. I don't want him going there any more. Well, it'll be the last time. Wednesday was warm and sunny. Bubber strode along, his hands in his pockets. At the soda fountain, a woman was drinking a big chocolate soda. The sight of it made Bubber's mouth water. A few minutes later, he came up on the gray, sagging porch and rang the bell. Below him, the weeds blew and rustled with the wind. It was almost four o'clock. He could not stay too long, but then it was the last time. The door opened. Come in, Bernard. He went inside, looking around. I'll start the cookies. I didn't know if you were coming. She padded into the kitchen. I'll get them started right away. You sit down on the couch. Bubber went over and sat down. He noticed that the table and lamp were gone. 
The chair was right up next to the couch. He was looking at the chair in perplexity when Mrs. Drew came rustling back into the room. They're in the oven. Now, she sat down in the chair. How is school? Fine, she nodded. How plump he was! She could touch him. He was so close. Ah, to be young again. Do you want to read to me, Bernard? I didn't bring any books. Oh. Well, I have some books. I'll get them. She got up, crossing to the bookcase. As she opened the doors, Bubber said, "Mrs. Drew, my father says I can't come here any more. He says this is the last time. I thought I'd tell you." Everything seemed to leap around her. The room twisting furiously. Bernard, you're, you're not coming back. No, my father says not to. The old lady took a book at random and came slowly back to her chair. Please read, Bernard. Please. He opened the book. Where'll I start? Anywhere, Bernard. It was something by Trollope. She only half heard the words. She put her hand to her forehead, the dry skin brittle and thin like old paper. The last time. Bubber read on. Against the window, a fly buzzed. Outside, the sun began to set, the air turning cool. The old lady sat close. She touched his arm. Bubber looked up. You don't mind if I touch your arm, do you? No, I guess not. He went on reading. The old lady could feel the youngness of him flowing between her fingers through her arm, and presently it began to happen as before. She closed her eyes, letting it move over her, filling her up, carried into her by the sound of the voice and the feel of the arm. She looked down at her arms; rounded they were. She touched her cheek; the wrinkles had gone. Suddenly she got to her feet, her body secure and confident. She turned a little quick circle. Bubber stopped reading. Are the cookies ready? I'll see. She walked quickly to the kitchen and opened the oven. She took out the cookies. All ready. Bubber came past her. His gaze fastened on the side of the cookies. Mrs. Drew hurried from the kitchen. She went into the bedroom, closing the door after her. Then she turned. Gazing into the full-length mirror on the door, she was young again, and this time it had not gone away. She opened the door. Bubber had filled his mouth and his pockets. He was standing in the center of the living room, his face fat and dull, a dead white. What's the matter? I'm going. All right, Bernard, and thanks for coming to read to me. She laid her hand on his shoulder. Perhaps I'll see you again sometime. My father, I know. Goodbye, Bernard. She watched him go slowly down the steps, one at a time. Then she closed the door and skipped back into the bedroom. She unfastened her dress and stepped out of it. The worn gray fabric distasteful to her. What a wonderful body! The flesh was firm. There was so much, so many things to do.
She started the water running in the bathtub, then went to tie her hair up. The wind blew around him as he trudged home. The boy felt tired. He was cold. He left Elm Street and went up Pine Street. At the corner, he stopped, holding on to a lamp post. The street lights were beginning to come on. At last, he went on, walking as best he could. Where is that boy? May Searle said, going out on the porch for the tenth time. Ralph flicked on the light, and they stood together. What an awful wind! They could see nothing but a few newspapers and trash being blown along. Let's go inside, Ralph said. He sure is going to get a licking when he gets home. They sat down at the dinner table. Presently, May put down her fork. Listen, do you hear something? Outside, against the front door, there was a faint sound. Ralph stood up. He went to the door and opened it. Something gray and dry was blowing up against the porch. A bundle of weeds, weeds and rags blown by the wind, perhaps. The bundle bounced against his legs. He watched it drift past him, against the wall of the house. Then he closed the door again slowly. What was it? Just the wind, Ralph Searle said. I am the music man. I come from down your way, and I can play. I play piano. I am the music man. I come from down your way, and I can play. I play the trumpet. Music man, I come from down your way, and I can play. I play the organ. I am the music man. I come from down your way, and I can play. I play saxophone. Music man, I come from down your way, and I can play. I play the guitar. I am the music man. I come from down your way, and I can play. I play the bagpipes.
man I come from down your way and I can play I play the drums I am the music man I come from down your way and I can play I play music I am the music man I come from down your way and I can play I play music this morning, Hitler attacked and invaded Russia. This was no surprise to me. In fact, I gave clear and precise warnings to Stalin of what was coming. I gave him warnings as I have given warnings to others before. Hitler is a monster of wickedness insatiable in his lust for blood and plunder. So now this bloodthirsty gutter snipe must launch his mechanized armies upon new fields of slaughter, pillage and devastation. Captain's Log, Stardate 5466.9. The Enterprise is in orbit around the outpost colony world of Rival 2, on orders from the Federation Agricultural Division to try and find a solution to the destructive plague of Dranzes, which wipes out 70 to 90% of the grain crop every sixth year. A landing party of Dr. McCoy, First Officer Spock, and myself has beamed down to the Rybolian surface to survey the problem firsthand. Mr. Newt Henderson of the Rybolian Settlers League has taken us in hand. Mr. Henderson, you realize that none of us has ever seen a Dranzer. So, if you knew Dranzers, Captain Kirk, you wouldn't wonder why we're making this little trip by air instead of on land. I confess that I am surprised at the lack of information on such a dangerous creature, Mr. Henderson. Starfleet records are of little help. Let's see if I can fill you in then, Mr. Spock, wasn't it? A Dranzer looks like a cross between a pig and a buffalo. They have long black hair, flat quadruple horns, an ugly disposition, and are about half the size of an earthly elephant. So it's their size which makes them a threat. Yeah, and the fact that they breed like rabbits. When this world was first settled 12 years ago, they weren't considered a danger. They stayed in the hilly grasslands on the western part of this continent. We grow our grain in the central and eastern plains regions. Everything was fine until six years ago. We noticed then that the Dranzers were so thick they nearly walked on each other. But we had no reason to suspect they would... Come down onto the plains and trample your fields. Just so. We don't know why. Too many Dranzers, too little food maybe, but they panicked. Came down out of the hills like a black avalanche and ruined the whole crop for that year. Nearly ruined the colony. But we hung on. 
replanted and have done well since then. Except... It's six more years and the Dranza population is up again. And you expect another continent-wide stampede. Yeah. Ah, there they are. Now, you'll see what I mean. I'll cut our engine and we'll glide in over them. Otherwise, the noise is liable to start the stampede. Like locusts. There must be thousands of them. Millions, Captain. I'm going to have to pull us out of here, gentlemen. Our shadow is making them nervous. Never mind. I think we've seen enough to give us some idea of the size of your problem, Mr. What do you suggest we do? We have been petitioning Starfleet for help for years. What about simply reducing the herds through selective pruning? No. We tried that three years ago when the herds first began to grow too big again. For one thing, it started a premature stampede which ruined several thousand square kilometers of maturing foothill cropland. As you might guess, the farmers in that area won't permit a repetition of that disaster. But there's another more important reason. Which is? There's a high grass which germinates in the hills. It would take over the plains except that the Dranzer herds keep it cut back. If we were to kill off the Dranzers, our agriculture experts tell us that in a decade, the grass would take over every meter of arable land on the continent. We have to find some way of controlling the dancers without letting the grass get out of control. But if we leave the natural cycle alone, the racial stampede will occur within a half year, and we'll lose another entire year's crop. Mr. Spock, reactions. At first glance, the problem would appear insoluble, Captain. That's not what we pay taxes to hear, Mr. Spock. I fear that government is rarely run according to scientific principles, Mr. Anderson. But we will, we must do something. I hope so, Mr. Spock, Captain Kirk. I sincerely hope so. You said the full stampede was expected within six months. It could happen tomorrow, too. Or next week, according to the biostatisticians, the herds are already at critical size. That does not give us much time to theorize prospective solutions. That's not our fault. We have been trying to get some action out of Starfleet for years. Starfleet has many concerns, sir. We'll do the best we can for you. Captain Kirk, we've got several hundred thousand kilometers of ripe food grains just about ready for harvesting, and they could be trampled into compost any day now. If it is, you'd better believe your superiors are going to hear of it. Old-fashioned doorways, they still have here. And if Henderson is typical of the Rebellion settlers, the people are pretty old-fashioned themselves. Such folk don't take catastrophe quietly. He's right. They can make trouble for us with headquarters. Well, what do they expect from us, Bones? We're not responsible for the ecological setup on this world. The Dranza stampede never bothered anyone until the colony here expanded to bring two-thirds of this continent under intensive cultivation. True, Captain. Bear in mind that the Dranzers do not vote. I have, however, thought of a possible solution which will only bend and not tear the natural fabric of this planet. Well? It involves a considerable risk on the part of those involved, Captain. Wait a minute, Spock. If this is something you regard as a considerable risk, I'm not sure I want any part of it. I'm afraid that your knowledge of organic chemistry is required, Doctor. But first, we must capture a large dranzer, the largest dranzer we can. Capture one? What on Rival 4? The explanation derives logically, Doctor. You wanted to see me, Captain Kirk? Yes, Henderson. 
Spock and Dr. McCoy beamed up to the Enterprise and have been working around the clock on your problem. They think they've come up with a solution. First, we need a number of those high-speed ground vehicles your people use. Wait a minute now. We asked for Federation aid. Why should we have to supply... You want us to stop this stampede or not? All right. If that's what you need, you'll have them. But by heaven, those ground cars are specially built for high-speed travel on Rybellion terrain. If you get them banged up... Take it easy, Henderson. We'll take care of your precious vehicles. And now, I'd like to hear this miracle your people have produced. They should be beaming down any minute now. I'll let them tell you about it in person. Here it is, Jim. That's all? That one little tank? It can't hold more than a couple of liters of... of what's in it, anyway? 1.8 liters, to be precise. But that will be sufficient. You mean you're going to stop the stampede of several million transers with this? Not stop, Mr. Henderson. Divert. Divert? Assuming that this little pop bottle of whatever it is can do anything, where do you propose to divert the herds to? And keep them diverted? They've been stampeding, according to the best evidence, in the same paths across the continent for thousands, millions of years. All will become clear, sir. Captain, have we the properly equipped vehicles? Standing by, Spock, with local drivers. When I explained what we were going to do, most of our would-be volunteers quietly disappeared. The drivers we have left are brave people. Excellent. Then all that is left is to transfer a portion of the liquid in this container into the equipment on each vehicle. Then... Come in. Just got this from the Delautre family ranch in the northwest quadrant. One of their outposters for scouting up in the hills. Thanks, Ellie. Well, what does it say? We're too late. You're too late. I should have known not to rely on Starfleet again. The stampede's already begun. Then we have no time to waste, gentlemen. Captain, Dr. McCoy, you will each command one set of vehicles. Mr. Henderson, how much time have we before the herd leaders reach the first grain fields? In case we fail, these areas should stand by to evacuate. Wait a minute. You don't propose to try something now. You can't expect to stop several million animals already in full stampede. I said divert. Remember, not stop. Captain, Dr. McCoy, are we ready? I hope you know what you're doing, Spock. If this doesn't work, they're going to have to scrape us off the ground. If it doesn't work, a lot of people here will be ruined, Doctor. And many elsewhere will go hungry. It must work. Besides, the percentages are in our favor. They are... Never mind. I don't want to hear. I might want to back out. Of course, everything depends on your accurate synthesis of the necessary liquid. Thanks, Spock. I hope your Mr. Spock knows what he's doing, Captain. He usually does, Anderson. He'd better this time. There's no way out for us, you know. We can't go right or left to escape the herds. If this doesn't work, we've had it. Look back there, out the rear window. See that dust cloud? Looks like a storm coming towards us. In a way, it is. There must be a hundred million animals in full stampede along a 2,000-kilometer-long front. And they average about two tons apiece. Do you know what they'll do to this vehicle and us if they overtake us? There won't be enough left of us to bark. Captain. Here's Spock. Ready at station one. Very good, Captain. I'm approximately 600 kilometers due north of your position. Dr. McCoy's group is a similar distance north of mine. Can you see the herd? 
We can see the dust cloud they're raising. Good. On my signal, you will activate the sealed tanks on your vehicles and start along the charted course. Check, Mr. Spock. Dr. McCoy? I heard, Spock. We're all set at this end. Jim? I'm here, Bones. This idea of Spock fails, I want his corpse court-martialed. Appropriate action will be taken, Bones. How long is he going to wait? Until he's sure the timing is right. Timing? Look behind us again. The dust is beginning to blot out the sun. Pretty soon we'll see the front wall of the herd. Do you know how far and how fast a Dranger can run, Captain? If we run out of fuel or have a mechanical problem or this crazy idea doesn't work, we've no place to run. Relax, Henderson. Spock knows what he's doing. I hope. I can make out individual animals now. They'll be honest in another few minutes. Here, you, Commander Spock, what's going on? What are you waiting for? The correct moment, Mr. Henderson. Correct moment? Look, in another couple of minutes, we're all going to be a smear on the landscape. If you don't... Very well. Captain, Dr. McCoy, you may open the valves on your tanks. Check, Spock. You can smell it even in here. What's in that canister anyway? Spock discovered that Dranzas have very poor eyesight. The herd leaders produce a musky odor which the others follow. He had Dr. McCoy mix up a batch of synthetic Dranzer musk, only concentrated several hundred thousand times. To the animals leading the herd, we must smell like the most authoritative Dranzer that ever lived. The same smell is being released by Mr. Spock's and Dr. McCoy's group of vehicles along the whole front of the herd. You have our course plotted? Yes, yes. Then let's get moving. With pleasure. It's working, Spock. They're turning slightly. Yes, they're following us. Here also, Captain. And up here. Good work, Spock. We are not secure yet, gentlemen. Captain, we can't keep this up forever. We've been running at this speed for nearly a whole day. Even with the extra fuel tanks I had installed, we can't continue at this speed much longer. We've covered so much territory already in this dust that... Hey, what's that up ahead? Leave that wheel alone. What are you doing? Don't you see? We're headed right into them again. They're behind us, too. We're trapped. Don't you see? We're trapped. Get a hold of yourself, Henderson. That's not another herd. That's the back end of the herd following us. Back in? Following us? Captain, all vehicles stand by to execute final maneuver. Ready, Spock. Ready. I don't understand, Captain. Look behind us now. It's the herd, but they're passing behind us. They're not following anymore. That's right, Edison. Spock knew we couldn't kill the Dranzas off, so the stampede had to take place. But nothing said it had to follow the same old path. Check our course. See, we've led the herds in a full circle. Our scent tanks are empty, and now the animals in the front of the herd are following the scent of those in the back of the same herd. They should keep running in a circle like a dog chasing its own tail until they run themselves out. The threat to your crops is over. Next year, the normal number of surviving grasses will keep the high grass from growing down into the plains. Control Group 3 to Group 2. Group 3 calling Group 2. Group 2 here. Is that you, Landowner Henderson? Mr. Spock, please accept my personal apology, along with the thanks of every farmer on Ribo 2. You've solved our problem, now and for the future. You're welcome, Mr. Henderson. But there is a penalty. Penalty? One cannot alter nature without reaping consequences. The millions of dead transers which used to scatter across the great plains of this continent will not lie in your fields this year. Their bodies used to fertilize the ground. 
now, you must move the corpses to your fields or import artificial fertilizers if you expect your fields to keep producing good grain in the future. But, Mr. Spock, that means moving a hundred million Dranzer bodies? A considerable task. Group two out. Two hundred million tons? Captain, do you think that Starfleet... Would... I'm sorry. Starfleet has saved your crops for you. But even Starfleet can only do so much. You're going to have to learn to help yourselves a little, too. Now, I suggest you get in touch with the rest of your neighbors and fellow farmers. The sooner you begin moving those bodies behind us, the better. Because if all those bodies begin to decompose in one place, and if the wind changes, you're going to have a very good grain crop. But an awfully smelly year. Clint Walker. Except that bulldozer kills. Carl Betts. Two men dead. The survivors watch an unmanned bulldozer continue its rampage. Kill Dozer. Everyone I know is finding out there's nothing new. Nowhere left to go and nothing left to do. Everyone I know is finding out there's nothing new. But I know 
Well, Frank, that was quite a grim show tonight. Uh, but we promised to do better, more lighthearted next time. Uncle Frank, what's your one more thing? The great Vic Damone was born on June 12, 1928 in Brooklyn under his real name, Vito Rocco Faninola. He took singing lessons as a kid and also sang in church on Sundays. Too soon he went to work as an elevator operator, and one day he trapped Perry Como between floors so they could sing to him. Mr. Como was impressed, and he gave the young man a chance to audition. Vic's first radio job was at WHN on the Gloom Dodgers show, where he provided entertainment for the Brooklyn Dodger fans. It was while at this station that Vic changed his name on the advice of Maury Amsterdam. Vic Damone went on to entertain on the big band circuit, in film, on television, and more radio, becoming a star. As we go out, we leave with one of his later hits, which, now that I think about it, is kind of depressing too, but oh well. This is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. See you next month.
Let the love that was once a fire remain an ember. Let it sleep like the dead desire I only remember. When they begin the beginning, oh yes, let them begin the beginning, make them play till the stars that were there before return above you, till you whisper to me once more, darling, I love you. And we suddenly know what heaven we're in when they begin the beginning. Till you whisper to me once more, darling, I love you, and we suddenly know what heaven we're in when they begin the beginning.